You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY podcast on iTunes. This week, Senior Minister Adam Hale closes out our Grace's Greater Sermon series with a message on grace greater than our despair. Thank you for listening, and as always, we hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Have a wonderful week. This morning we are wrapping up our series that we've been doing for the last several weeks, Grace is Greater. And uh, this morning, how many of you all overate this weekend? Had this week you had a lot to eat. Some of you didn't overeat. Some of you are liars. Like we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna deal with that this morning. We're gonna deal with gluttony. Uh, since I said that in first service and nobody laughed, and I asked them, I said, "You all just not laugh at my jokes?" And then I was reminded what someone from second service said a few weeks ago. I said, "Adam, your jokes just aren't that funny." And so, now that's not what y'all were supposed to laugh at. Now, but it has been an enjoyable series. I hope that you've enjoyed it. Remember what we said the very first week of this series, that the goal of this series was not that we would grow in the knowledge of grace and in the doctrine of grace. If that happened over the course of these last several weeks, then great. But that wasn't the goal. The goal was that we would begin to experience grace. And experiencing grace and knowing about grace are two different things. And uh, I've been encouraged by several of you who have told me stories through uh, this series of how the grace effect in your life has it's come kind of full circle and, and through different means and you, you've, you've either given forgiveness or you've, you've tried to reconcile with someone or, or something along those lines. But the grace effect has taken hold. And my prayer is, is that the grace effect will continue to take hold and that it will spill over into the lives of others because in that moment, when we experience grace and we show grace to others, it's in that moment that God's grace has the power to transform lives. And so that's what we're, you know, the church is in the business of transforming lives. And so um, my prayer is, is that even as we finish this series, that, that that would be taking place. In 1921, there was a missionary couple from Sweden named David and Svea Flood. And they went with their two-year-old son from Sweden to the heart of Africa to what was then called the Belgian Congo. They met up with another missionary couple, and the four of them decided that they would go take the gospel to a remote group of people who had never heard the name of Jesus. Now let me pause just right there for a moment and say, in 1921 we would have thought that was very possible, that there were groups in the deepest, darkest parts of Africa that had never heard about the name of Jesus. We say in 2017 there's no way that there are people who live in this world that don't know about Jesus, but unfortunately that's not true. Which is why it's so important that we have missionaries. And I'm so thankful. One of the things that I'm most thankful for this year is that God still calls missionaries into the mission field to take the name of Jesus to the parts of the world that have not been reached. And believe it or not, there are still many people groups that have never heard about Jesus. Unfortunately for the floods, they, as they went to the Congo, when they arrived, the chief of the tribe wouldn't let them live in the village. They were forced to live about a mile away from the, from the village, and their only contact with anyone at all was with a little boy who was allowed to come out and sell them food. Now, eventually, Svea, the, the wife, would end up leading that young boy to Jesus, but that was the only progress that they ever had. They had no other contact with anybody else in the village. The other couple soon contracted malaria, and they left. They packed up their stuff and said they were going home. And so the floods were there on their own. And it wasn't long after that that Sophia, who was pregnant, also contracted malaria. 
And just after days of giving birth, she died. Her husband dug a crude grave and buried his then 27-year-old wife and went back to the main mission station. He gave his newborn baby girl to the missionaries there and said, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife. I've lost my entire life. I obviously can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. And with that, he packed up his, what little he had, took his son, and went back to Sweden. At this point in the story, I can't help but wonder why a man of such faith would respond this way. Obviously, David Flood was a man of faith. I mean, you don't, you don't just pick up everything that you own, take your wife and your two-year-old son to another country, another continent, if you don't have some sort of faith that God can do big things. And so I wonder why a man of such faith would respond that way. Now, that's easy for me to say. It's easy for me to say in hindsight, looking back on it, but it's easy, even easy for me to say because I've never experienced that kind of disappointment, that kind of heartache. I've never gone through what he went through. But it seems to me that the pain that David Flood went through was just too much. His life seemed completely ruined, beyond repair. There was no coming back from, from this, from his perspective. From his perspective, this was where the story ended. Do you remember the kids' books that were, that were called uh, the Choose Your Own Adventure books? Um, they were wildly, wildly popular a few years ago. But these Choose Your Own Adventure books, each story asked, allowed the reader at different p- points in the story to, to pick the way you wanted the story to end. And so if you were reading the book and you wanted the story to end a certain way, you might turn to page 73. And if you didn't like the way that that ending was going, you would turn to page 91. And if you got to one of those pages and you didn't like that, you just went back and you started again. You know, those books were so popular, and it's not surprising to me that they were popular, but they sold over 250 million copies of that series, those Choose Your Own Adventures. And I think one of the reasons that they were so popular is because we like that idea. We would all prefer a story that we could control the end to. We would like to be able in our life to control the circumstances and the situations that we find ourselves in so that we could control how the result, how it's going to turn out, what the results are going to be. Wouldn't it be great if life had an option B? Like we said, all right, we're we're living life and things are going this way and we don't like the way things are going. So we're going to hit reset and we're just going to flip the page page back a few pages and we're going to try it again and we're going to go this direction. It'd be great if life had an option B like that. But it doesn't. Eventually, we all reach a point in our own story where we don't want to keep reading. The challenge is too overwhelming. The relationship is too broken. The, the situation is too impossible. The pain is too much. And I think David Flood had reached that point. The pain was just too much. What about you? Have you ever reached a point in your life like that where you, you dealt with as much as you could for as long as you could But eventually the pain just becomes too much. Here's my question though this morning. What if what feels like the end of the story is just the middle? What if the the story that we're in, our story, what if the, the situation we're in, what if it's not the end of the story? What if it's just the middle of the story? When God is the author of the story, you can trust that His grace will have the final word. God's grace can redeem anything. It redeemed His own Son's death. It can redeem anything. And one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture, probably my my favorite verse, 
in all of Scripture is about the power of God's grace, and it's found in Romans chapter 8. And this is what it says, Romans 8, 28. Most of you probably know this. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Paul tells us that the author of our story, the one directing our lives, is trustworthy and he's going to bring a good ending no matter how bad the chapter we're currently reading might seem. That's the promise of grace. But let's be real honest about that. When you're the one that's hurting, when it's your health that's failing, when it's your marriage that's falling apart, when it's your child that's struggling, when it's your job that's been eliminated, and when your pain is too much, the idea that God's grace can work all things out to the good, really it seems at best naive, doesn't it? And probably more likely it seems offensive that God would work whatever it is that we're going through that's so bad that He would work that to the good. That seems offensive. The promise must have seemed just as unbelievable to the Christians in, in Rome who first received that. Because of their faith, they faced potential, they faced potential plat- uh, loss of jobs. They faced family relationships that would be destroyed because they were, of their faith. They even faced death. You all know where we got the ichthus fish? You all have seen that, the, the popular Christian ichthus fish? You know where that came from? It came from first century Christians who had to communicate in the marketplace. You know, it was illegal to be a Christian at that time and and if you were found out to be a Christian it was likely that you were going to face lions in in the Colosseum and so to be able to communicate a Christian might go up to to a market stand and just draw the first half of that little fish and in the wheat whatever was there and if the mark if the retailer was a Christian he would recognize that and he would finish the other half of it and then you knew it was a safe place to communicate and you could, you could buy things in the market. And if the person didn't know what you were doing, you just, you know, rub it away and, and all was good. That's how, how we got that. So the first century Christians were no strangers to persecution. And when Paul tells them that, that God will work all things to the good, whatever it is that they're going through, whether it's a, a family relationship, whether it's impending death, God can work that to their good. It probably seemed offensive to them. Let's be honest, in in those moments, simple platitudes don't do much to make us feel better. Paul recognizes some of the difficulties that they were facing when when he mentions hardships and persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and the sword. He assures them in verse 37 that in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And then in verse 39 he tells us, and that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul wants these Christians, these first century Christians, to understand that no matter how desperate things may seem, in that moment that God's love and grace will win the day. Now Paul wasn't calling for blind optimism. He doesn't say, and we think that in all things, or we know in all things, or, or we might know, or we hope for in all things. No, Paul says, we know. Paul is speaking with the certainty of a man who has glimpsed the redeeming work of God in his own life. That word translated, we know, it's used one other time in Romans 8, and it's, it's found in verse 22, but it's, it's translated as, in the Greek as an un, absolute, unshakable confidence. Paul is speaking with certainty. He's saying, I am absolutely sure I have this unshakable confidence that God works in all things to the good for those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. And it's used one other time in Romans 8. It's in verse 22. 
And in that verse, Paul is talking about the pain of, of this life and, and how the world can be a pretty messed up place. And he writes in verse 22, he says, We know that the whole creation, or we know with unshakable confidence, with, with all certainty, that the creation has been groaning. In other words, Paul says two things are absolutely true. Life is hard, and God is good. Paul is unshakably confident about those two truths. But sometimes the space between them feels like an eternity, doesn't it? Life is hard, and God is good. We can all agree that life is hard. And we would all probably agree that God is good. But the space between those two statements can feel like an eternity. I like to buy books. Uh, Christy will tell you, that if you ask Christy, she will tell you that I have a book-buying problem. And the problem with that is, is that I often don't finish reading the books. Um, just this last, in the last two weeks, I've bought probably five, five new books, and eventually at some point I will start reading them. There's no guarantee that I will finish reading them, but I will eventually start reading them. And here's what I do. I'll, I'll buy a book, I read it, I get about halfway through, and then I get distracted or I get bored and I set it down. And it sits on my desk for a week or two, and then I might pick it up. And if I do pick it up, I may try to get back into it. But what usually happens is I'll put it back down, and it'll sit there for another week or two. And then it goes back on the bookshelf. So Christy is constantly encouraging me with just three words that maybe you need to hear this morning. Maybe God is saying you're at a point in your story where you just need to just keep reading. Because the story isn't over yet. The final chapter is yet to be written. Trust the author. If you're in the middle of a chapter that is titled, Life is Hard, you can know for certain that you will soon come to a chapter that's titled, God is Good. Just keep reading. We think, though, that if I, if I just knew what was going to happen, if I knew, just knew how things were going to end, it would be easier. It would be so much easier if I, if I just could see the big picture, if I could, if I could see what was going to happen in the future and know how it was all going to end up, it would be so much easier to, to go through. And you know what? That's normal. If you feel that way, that's a normal, that's a normal feeling. In fact, uh, two UC San Diego researchers did a study on that. And the results suggested that spoilers don't actually spoil the story if, you know, any more than people watching it for the first time. Any of you have a favorite TV show that you, you want to watch, but you don't always get to watch it when it comes on, so you have to DVR it. Anybody do that? Okay, I've got a couple shows that, that I, they're my favorite shows, and I very rarely ever watch them at the, at the time they come on. And so I do my best to avoid seeing what's going to end. I, I'll tell you, I'm a big Survivor fan. I've watched, been watching Survivor since the first season, and now it's in like season 30 or whatever, and, and I've seen them all. And they come on Wednesday nights, and so I usually don't watch it on Wednesday nights. And so I do my best to avoid seeing who was voted off before I get to watch the episode. But here's what these researchers have found, is that knowing the end didn't necessarily spoil the story. One researcher had an interesting theory about why people like to know the end of the story before the ending. He said, it could be that once you know the, how things turn out, it's cognitively easier and you're more comfortable processing the information so you can focus on a deeper understanding of the story. He says, in other words, if you know how it's going to end, you're allow, you, you allow yourself to focus on the details and you're able to process the information easier. And maybe he's right. 
When a story has been spoiled, it's easier to follow and to understand. And sure, we lose some of the suspense along the way, but perhaps knowing how it will end allows us not to just endure the journey, but possibly even enjoy the journey. Paul doesn't give a spoiler alert, but he does tell us how the story ends. He says, because of grace, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And so sometimes, you just have to keep reading. Let me finish telling you about, this, about David Flood, the Swedish missionary. Well, the daughter that he gave to the other missionaries, she was adopted by, by some missionaries there and brought back to live in the United States. And they gave her the name Aggie. And one day, Aggie was uh, here in the States, and she went out to check the mailbox, and she, she opened the mail, and she's flipping through, and there's a magazine. It's a Swedish magazine. And so she starts thumbing through it, and then she comes across a picture that stops her dead in her tracks. The picture was of a crude grave, a crude white cross, with a name written Svea Flood across it. It was the grave of her mother. She immediately recognized the name, and so she took the magazine to someone who could, who could translate the article for. There was an article that accompanied the picture, and she took it to this person, and this person sat, sat her down, and the, Aggie listened to the story about the work her mother had done as a missionary. A little later, Aggie decided that she was going to travel to Sweden to find her father. turns out that he had remarried, and he had four other children, and basically he had ruined his life by becoming an alcoholic. After an emotional meeting with her half-siblings, Aggie brought up the idea of going to meet her father. The siblings warned that he was very ill and that whenever the name of God was brought up, he would go into a rage. Aggie wasn't deterred, though, and so she walked into his tiny apartment with, with liquor bottles everywhere, and she walked up to the man who was now 73 years old, who had deserted her years before, and as soon as she said the word Papa, the man, David Flood, began to cry. He began to cry and apologize profusely, and she, she smiled and she said, It's all right, Papa. God has taken care of me. And instantly, David stiffened up. His tears stopped. And he looked at this young lady and he said, God, God forgot all of us. Our lives have been ruined because of him. Aggie, still undeterred, said, Papa, I need to tell you a story, and it's a true story. Aggie said, the little boy that, that you and Mama led to the Lord grew up to lead his entire village to faith in Jesus. The one seed that you planted just kept growing and growing and growing. And today, more than 600 African people are serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of Jesus in your life. You didn't go to Africa in vain, Papa. Mama didn't die in vain, Papa. Papa, Jesus loves you and he has never hated you. David was stunned. His muscles relaxed. He dried his eyes and their conversation continued. And by the end of the day, David had returned to the God that he had resented for so many decades. And within a few weeks, he walked through the doorway of death and into his eternal home in, God, in heaven with God. And I'll tell you, I'm incredibly thankful for what God did in David Flood's lives and life as he lived out the last few weeks of his life. But I can't help but think that David could have handled the pain so much better if he just hadn't lost faith in God's goodness. I want to ask, what could have been? And I think that's the question that we all want to ask in situations like that. What could have been? What could have happened if only he had believed in God's grace? If only he had believed that God's grace was greater? What if? What if instead of closing the book, he would have just kept reading? 
You know, one of the reasons that we have a hard time believing that God's grace is working for, for the good in our lives is because of how we define the word good. We have our own ideas of how God should work things to the good in our life. And that could range from a cancer-free report to an on-time flight. A few years ago, I was on my way home from a friend's uh, wedding, and it was late at night. I was eager to get home, and my left foot got a little too heavy. And I know my left foot got a little too heavy because that's what the police officer told me as he was writing me out a ticket. The result of that ticket meant another trip to traffic school. And if you listen carefully, you caught that another trip. And, and I'll just tell you that it was, that was at a point in my life where really they should have been paying me to teach the class. I could have taught it. I had been so many times. And I can tell you, the last thing that I wanted to do was to go to another traffic school class. And, and if, if any of you in here are traffic school instructors, please, you're going to be offended by this. And, and I just, I'll ask you to forgive me later. But, but that's got to be the most boring thing I have ever been to in my life. I mean, if that's what hell's going to be like, then I don't want any part of it. Because traffic school, man. When I got the traffic school information in the mail, I saw there was only one date in the area that was close to me. And of course, that date was on the same date as, there, as a previous engagement that I had of something that I really wanted to go to. And so I was more than a little annoyed that I was going to spend my time that night going to traffic school. The class was to be held at the Clinton County Courthouse, and I arrived at 5.30. Got there a little early so I could make sure I got a good seat in the back, you know, so if I fell asleep, you know, the instructor wouldn't notice, and, and it would be okay. Apparently, several other people had the same idea, because when I got there, there were about 15 other people there, and they were all lined up in the hallway, which struck me as odd. They were all in the hallway. Nobody was in the classroom. What I soon learned was that because this was the only class being offered in, in a reasonable time frame for for this area was that this was going to be a large class there were a lot of people coming to traffic school that night which guaranteed that we were going to have that one guy in class who was going to ask that question you know when they're right about ready to let you go and class is almost over and you got that one guy that's going to ask the question because he's never been to traffic school before and so we were sure that we were going to have this guy in our class but as time got closer, I noticed more people coming in and more people are just standing in the hallway. And nobody's telling us where to go. Nobody's saying, hey, you know, traffic school is going to be down here. Because it's, at this point, almost 6 o'clock. It's time for class to start. And nobody has left the hallway. What we later found out within a couple moments was that because it was such a large class, the only place big enough to hold us was going to be the actual courtroom. And wouldn't you, wouldn't you know it, it was locked. And the instructor didn't have a key, and nobody else had a key, and they didn't know who to call to get, get it open. And the instructor was adamant that she was not going to teach 75 people traffic school in the middle of a hallway. And so angrily, she got up. She said, you bring me your paper, you sign it, I'll sign it, and you can go home. Class is canceled. And God works to the good for all who love Him and are called according to His purpose. We tend to think God working for our good means that we won't experience pain and that we'll somehow be exempt from the suffering of this world. But God's definition of good is different from that. So what is God's definition of good? Let me give you two ways that you can know that God's grace is at work in the midst of your pain. 
to bring about goodness in your life. Number one, you can know that God's grace is working in your pain to draw you closer to Jesus. God doesn't waste our pain. Rather, He can use it to work it in, in us to call our hearts closer to Him. Here's how the Living Bible paraphrases 2 Corinthians 7.10. It says, For God sometimes uses sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from our sin and seek eternal life. My guess is that this is exactly what happened for many of us. We go through something incredibly difficult, and it was difficult. And in the midst of that, you discover Jesus in a way that you would have never known Him before. What you thought was the worst thing that ever happened to you ended up being an eternal difference maker because it brought you closer to Jesus. See, that's the difference that grace makes. It doesn't always take away our pain. In fact, maybe it rarely ever does. But it does something better. It redeems our pain. In our pain, we discover the presence of Jesus in a way that we would have never known Him otherwise. Secondly, you can know that God's grace is working in your pain to make you more like Jesus. God's grace takes all the broken pieces of our lives and puts them together so that, we, so that we look more like Jesus. After promising us that in all things God is working for the good in our lives, Paul gives a further explanation of at least one way that God brings about goodness. Romans 8.29 says, For those who God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Paul speaks of those that God foreknew. God is all-knowing, and His knowledge isn't limited to a linear timeline. We have, we have a, a, a vast array of knowledge, but all of our knowledge is because of, of past experiences. We don't have knowledge of the future. God is not limited to time and space, so He has all knowledge, which means that God knows every good thing that will ever happen to you. He also knows every bad thing that will ever happen to you. You will never hear God say, wow, I didn't see that coming. Or I didn't expect that to happen. God will never say that because God's knowledge isn't limited to, to space and time. He knows all. And in His foreknowledge, knowing everything that was going to be good or bad that would happen to you, He decided to use that pain, those bad things, He decided to use that to make us more like Him. After Paul tells us that, we're told what God has done with that knowledge, that He has predestined, that He has predetermined that all things in life will work for our good by conforming us to the image of Christ. Knowing, that, knowing all that you would go through, God made a decision ahead of time to take all of that and make you more like Jesus. And that means your pain always has a purpose. There's a big difference between pain that has a purpose and pain that seems pointless. But your pain always has a purpose. I'm sure if, you've had, if you have kids uh, that, as husbands and wives, you've had the discussion about the pain of childbirth. Christy, my wife, is fairly convinced that if men had to endure the level of pain that accompanies giving birth, that the world would have never been populated. And I'd say she's probably right. But from a purely physical standpoint, having kidney stones and giving birth are two events that are fairly close on the pain chart. Now, all women immediately start shaking their head no. Yeah. So, Christy's had two children, and, and I've had nearly a dozen kidney stones, and so I thought I could convince her one night that the pain of a kidney stone is at least equal to the pain of childbirth. I thought she, needed a, I thought she at least needed an appreciation for the male species and our tolerance of pain, and she didn't have it, and, and I'm going to just say that she probably still doesn't have it. But we talked about it for a while, but then she made a great point. 
She said there's a big difference in choosing pain versus having no choice. There's a difference in, in having pain and choosing that pain and having no choice. Meaning women are tougher because they consciously choose to endure pain, whereas the man, no man has ever chosen to endure a kidney stone. No man will ever say, I'm so excited to pass that kidney stone. It just doesn't happen. Now, I didn't admit it then, but I will admit it to you all. I thought she made a great point. Choosing to go through pain is a, on a different level of toughness than being forced to go through pain. The question is, why would a woman choose to go through that pain? Well, it's because that pain, she knows that that pain has a purpose. She's willing to endure the pain because that pain is going to produce something. She's so focused on, on what the pain will produce. In fact, afterwards, given enough time, she may even say, I want to do that again. I'll do that again. No man who's ever passed a kidney stone ever says anything like that, I can assure you. You see, the difference in the pain of childbirth and the pain of kidney stones is that the, is that the pain of childbirth produces something good and precious. There's a purpose that comes from that pain. And as long as we can have confidence that that pain has a purpose, we can find the strength to endure it. Paul reminds us it is God's grace that gives us this confidence. His grace in our pain is a promise that whatever we go through in this life, it will not be wasted. It will give birth to something good. From time to time, I talk with people who are, who are looking for answers when their pain seems to be too much. And one of the comments that, that I often hear, and you probably hear this too, is that everything happens for a reason. Anybody ever heard that statement? Everything happens for a reason. I hear that, and I understand why we say that, because when, when, life, when the pain of life is overwhelming, we're desperate to make sense of it. We think that if there's a reason behind it, the pain won't hurt as much. But I'm not sure there always is a reason. And even if there is, I'm quite sure that we would not un always understand it. So maybe we should reframe how we ask the question. Instead of asking, what's the reason, maybe we should ask, what's the purpose? Because I don't know if there's always a reason. But I, but I know that God in His grace always has a purpose. What's the difference between reason and purpose? Well, reason looks for a because, but purpose focuses on the for. Reason wants a logical explanation that will, make, that will make sense out of something that has already happened. But purpose offers us a hope that whatever has happened, God can work for good. Do you remember what Jesus said when he and his disciples came across a man who had been born blind? Or when he got the news that a tower had fell over in Siloam and had killed 18 people? Do you remember what he said? People came and they asked, why has this happened? What's the explanation? The people wanted a reason. Well, Jesus didn't give them one. In fact, in so many words, he said, these things happen, but watch for the work of God to be accomplished here. He didn't give them a reason. He gave them a purpose. These things happen because the work of God was going to take place. He assured them there was a purpose. God's grace to us in our pain is that our pain is not without purpose. God can work through it to make us more like Jesus. And I know when you're going through, su when you're going through suffering or you're living with pain that it may seem like that God, this God who is all-powerful and who is all-knowing, should just step in and intervene. He should, he should reach in and stop it and do something about it. But consider the possibility that God in His grace is helping Sometimes grace hurts so that it can help. It's hard to find grace in cancer. But maybe God allows the cancer to help us take stock of our lives and to help those around us think about eternity. 
It's hard to find grace when you can't stand your boss, but maybe God allows a difficult boss to help you learn to be self-controlled and to not find your identity in a job. It's hard to find grace in in unemployment, but maybe He allows unemployment to help us understand that we are dependent on Him. Maybe He allows the pain of a broken heart to, to expose our idolatry and to help us learn to put our trust in Him. God's grace to you is that He will work through your pain to accomplish His good purpose in your life. He is at work within us to make us more like Jesus. It may not make sense now, but just keep reading. And in some cases, we'll have to keep reading all the way into eternity. The the tension between life is hard and God is good won't be fully reconciled until we get to heaven. But from that perspective, from the perspective of heaven, we'll finally be able to see the goodness and the greatness of God's grace. Paul talks about it this way in 2 Corinthians verse four, in chapter 4. He says, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. And so we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. God will bring good out of your bad, even if you can't currently see how God might be drawing you closer to Him or getting glory from your pain. Just remember, you're in the middle. It's not the end of the story. Just keep reading because grace will have the final word. A few years ago, I heard about a man who was living in Louisville. His name was Craig. Now, Craig had never had any health issues, but after a few weeks of feeling tired and Having an upset stomach, he, was, he went to the ER for testing, and he was diagnosed within, within literally hours with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. He was given six months to live. With tears streaming down his cheeks, he sat there with his wife as they, as they tried to process what they had just been told. And He looked at his wife and he said, I'm deciding right now, right now in this moment, that I'm going to trust God no matter what the future holds. And I tell you, I never met Craig. But I followed his story. Some friends of mine uh, went to church with him. And, and at the same time, a, a, two mentors of mine, who one was a school teacher and one was my, my home church preacher, were both going through the same thing. They were both battling stage 4 pancreatic cancer. And so this seemed, even though I didn't know Craig, it seemed very personal to me. He and his wife started a blog that allowed people to, to follow their journey. And so I would regularly check their blog. And... It wasn't long that Craig's treatments, they found, weren't working. And he started going downhill fast. His wife, she was brave but scared. And and he was having conversations with other people about how to have conversations with his kids. He had three young girls, and how do you tell three young girls that daddy's dying? So he was having those conversations, and it was just a short time later that Craig died. A few days after his death, I checked his blog, and I read his final entry, and this is what it said. He said, just looking at myself in the mirror, I can tell that my downward spiral has begun. I'm at an all-time low of about, eight, about 118 pounds. I have an awkward time of shaving my face because it's pure bone, and I feel like I'm having to shave every bony contour my face has. My yellow eyes constantly remind me my jaundice is settling back in. This pretty, mean, pretty much means that things are going to eventually start shutting down, and it won't be long. There's nothing out there that makes sense for me to do to treat this that we haven't already looked at. Yet the encouragement I have is that my eternal life will be in heaven and that I will be cancer-free soon, and that puts a smile on my face. I am very motivated about what the future has to offer me, 
And there's a lot of reason to be excited. And then, his very last sentence, his final words, just three of them, followed by five exclamation marks, he wrote, God is good. Life is hard, but God is good. So just keep reading, because grace is greater, always, no matter what. And this morning, there there are no doubt many of you who are in that chapter where life is hard. And it's a long chapter, and you've been going through it for a while, and you think, I'll never get to the end of this. Don't give up. Just keep reading, because God is good, and grace is greater. This morning, my prayer is that we would all experience the grace effect of God's goodness. Because we can all agree, life is hard. And the only thing that makes that truth bearable is that God is good and that grace is greater. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. And we are thankful for your grace. Father, we're thankful for the goodness that you you give to us. We're thankful that in these situations, in these life circumstances that we don't understand, we don't know why we're going through it. Father, we're thankful that it's not the end. That it's just the middle. And Father, I pray that you would give us the strength to just keep reading. And to not close the book, but to just keep reading. Because on the other side, on the, in the next chapter, maybe it's, maybe it's at the end of the book, we get to the truth that you are good. And so Father, whatever it is that people are going through this morning, whatever it is that we're going through, Give us strength, strength to endure, and to have that unshakable confidence to know that you work all things to the good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So, Father, in this next few moments, as we, as we prepare to stand and, and sing, Father, I pray that, that your Spirit just might move among us. And that if there's someone here this morning who needs to give their life over to you, that they're in a chapter called Life is Hard, that, they would, that today would be the day where they would experience that God is good and that your grace is greater. I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. Father, give us comfort to know that we can turn to our brothers and sisters in Christ, that they'll be there to, to comfort us, to pray with us. But even more than that, that your command is to follow you. And so when life is hard, we don't have to worry about you being behind us or having deserted us because you're right in front of us. We just have to put one foot in front of the other. So Father, give us strength for that because life is hard. But you're good and your grace is greater always, no matter what. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.